Nation. So I kept that in reserve because I thought that would be nice at this time of year. And that's what we're going to look at today. We did look at the person of Jesus Christ. We looked at uh, who he is. And we said that he's truly God, truly human, and that his godness and his humanness are perfectly integrated uh, in unity. And you can uh, see the significance of that. He's trustworthy because he's God. He's sympathetic because he's human. We know that the price of redemption was paid by somebody with infinite resources, was prayed by God, and we know that Jesus is to be worshipped. And we think, think about the person of Jesus Christ in those ways. Uh, but it, in some ways, I think that topic is a topic for reflection, and perhaps even it raises philosophical questions, which uh, theologians look at, and probably a lot better than I could, but what we're going to look at today is a slightly different angle, not looking abstractly at the person of Jesus Christ, but looking at the particular historical incident of the incarnation. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought this isn't really a matter of abstract philosophy, but there's a whole lot about relationships and attitudes. Um, the incarnation leads us to what I think we can only call the personal aspects. The personal aspects of the way God is, the personal aspects of the way God relates to human beings, and the personal aspects of the way human beings relate to God. So it brings us, it seems to me, into the realm of psychology, if you like, motivation, relationships, attitudes. So my proposal today is that's what we particularly learn in the incarnation, and you can see whether you agree with me or not. So we're going to look at some classic passages. There are other passages too. Would you like to open your Bible? If you go to John chapter 1, there is a very important statement there in John 1, verse 14, where it says in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's quite short, and um, that's one of the classic passages, and I'm going to just go straight on, having quoted that, and refer us now to Luke chapter 1, which is what Ruth read to us. And I'd like to look at uh, the, around about verse 35. And the other passage that we're going to look at is in Philippians chapter 2. That's another very important passage about the incarnation. So let's, let's go to Luke this time. 
So we've got a little bit more detail about the uh, sequence of events. So in verse, I don't, I've put verse 38, but I think I'm meaning verse 35. Listen to what it says again. The angel, uh, so Mary says, how can this be? Since I'm a virgin. How will I have a child since I haven't had sexual relations with a husband? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Let's just look at that uh, sentence there. How does the incarnation take place? How is it that God becomes human? The word became flesh. Okay, that's what it says there. But we've got some more detail here. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Think of that expression about coming upon. It's used in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which I'm just going to look up. Uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And it's also used in Acts 8.24, where uh, this is reference to bad things. Simon answered, pray to the Lord, so that none of the things you have said may come upon me, may happen to me. So the idea of something coming upon us. How, is the, how does the incarnation take place? It takes place when the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, comes upon her. So what could have been said? It could have been said, uh, the Holy Spirit will come to confront you and fight with you. But it doesn't say that. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And it doesn't say, the Holy Spirit will become available to you so that you can... Uh, follow your plans and your agenda. It's not about human mastery. It's the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the sense seems to be of something of power, something of influence and authority under which we become helpless. A storm comes upon us bad things come upon us. The Holy Spirit comes upon us. And I think it has this idea of a power over, uh, 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 coming over um, Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you to become helpless under a superior power. And, and there's a parallel phrase. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Think about that phrase. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The word for overshadowing is used in Luke 9.34 in the Transfiguration, when the, there was a cloud, you remember, and the cloud overshadowed them. And it's also used in Acts 5.15, where 
people thought it, as Peter passed by, they would be healed when, his, when he overshadowed them, when they walked past and they fell under his shadow. And there's an interesting, it's an interesting expression, isn't it? The, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It's the idea of something that makes no noise. A shadow makes no noise. When the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration overshadowed them, it was a silent thing, wasn't it? It's something unavoidable. When the cloud comes to overshadow us on a sunny day, we can't do anything about it. It just comes over the top of us. It's something bigger than we are. Uh, we don't have a competition whether we're going to overshadow the cloud or the cloud's going to overshadow us because it's no competition. The cloud overshadows us because it's bigger than we are. And here we have um, what seems to me to be the, the beginnings of a description of the way God, God's power works in this particular um, event. Something about the hugeness of the power but something about the quietness of the power, something about the gentleness of it, because a, a cloud as it overshadows doesn't conflict with us, it just comes, doesn't it? Uh, so I put in my notes an unforceful power. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. A huge power, but a power which is quiet and gentle. I press the button and I ask the question who does the power in this uh, in, uh, as Luke tells it to us who does the power whose power is it and what's the answer the power of the most high so we take that to be the power of God himself and we're also given another person who does the power or it's put in another way the Holy Spirit. So who does the action? The Most High does this. The Holy Spirit does this. Let's ponder that. And let's now turn to the, the other classic passage I had in mind, the Philippians 2 passage, and see what this tells us about the subject of the Incarnation. So we're now in Philippians chapter 2, although I put verse 7, I think I meant verse 6, uh, and verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now see what is being said here. It says in verse 7, he made himself nothing. So there's a um, a pronoun and a verb. He made himself nothing. Oh, the, the pronoun's implied. He took the very nature of a servant. Philippians 2, verse 7. He took... Thank you. He, he took the very nature of a servant. And it says in verse 8, he humbled himself. Be thinking, who is the he 
that's being spoken of here. Just hold that thought for a moment. And it says in verse 8, he, the, the he is implied, became obedient to death. And who is the he? Uh, the same he is the one who, right at the beginning of it, in verse 6, is the one being in very nature God who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So here's the question. Who does the action in Philippians? Who is the active person in the incarnation? The answer is Christ Jesus. So it's interesting, isn't it? Do you see that we're building up a little picture here? What is happening in the incarnation? We have a powerful, powerful act, an act of a particular quality by the triune God. The Father is involved, the power of the Most High. The Holy Spirit is involved. The, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you or come upon you. And the Son is involved because it is the Son who takes humbles himself, etc. So my first uh, point on this is here we have a mighty act uh, of the Holy Spirit, uh, sorry, of the, of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The way the Trinity works is indivisible. Uh, it's not like uh, the Westminster government where you have one department for transport one department for housing one department for pensions one department for education and none of them know what the others are doing and they're all in competition for funding and, uh, and, 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 and it's very difficult to, for them to, to coordinate and the Trinity is not like that with three different conflicting departments the Holy Trinity works in an indivisible way and we see this here in the incarnation don't we this is an act of the holy trinity father son and holy spirit and it's an act of amazing power the power of the most high will overshadow you and i'd invite you to consider that power would you like to compare the power in the incarnation with the power required to make a million worlds. Which would you say required more power? Don't know the answer, but it's a, an interesting question, isn't it? I would say that there's an extraordinary power at work in the incarnation. Then I ask, what is the quality of this power? So when we measure power, we usually think of destructive power, like uh, however many times the uh, um, Hiroshima bomb, don't we? We say it was 100 times more powerful than that, 1,000 times more powerful than that. And it's measured in terms of destruction. Or earthquakes, number five on the Richter scale or 10 on the Richter scale, uh, it's, it's all uh, measured in terms of destruction. How is this power brought to bear? 
here, the power of God is brought to bear not by smashing things to smithereens, but by working quietly in an invisibly in the womb of this Middle Eastern girl in a north, north country village. And I want to say that this shows us something of the nature of our God. What sort of God is he? What sort of way does he like to work? Well, something to ponder and perhaps to worship as we were singing, bow down and worship for this is your God. So let's come, having thought that this is a powerful act of the Trinity, let's now think of that it's more than just power. It's not simply a display of God's power, but there needs to be a particular mindset on a personal level. So let's look at the mindset involved. Let's go back to Luke chapter 1. Is there any particular attitude, relationship that is required or brought to bear in, uh, in the person, this is Mary, who is intimately involved in this wonderful action of God? Now you notice that God doesn't just zap her and then she finds out she's pregnant and she doesn't know why. That the first thing God does is he comes to speak to her. And let's think of the incarnation. We have divinity and humanity perfectly combined. How do you do that? Do you do it by welding? Do you do it by glue? Do you combine humanity with divinity with steel rivets? It's not like that, is it? There is something about divinity and humanity that when they're combined, it has to be by a combination involving personhood by agreement, with willingness, seems to be profoundly part of how God relates to people and how people relate to God. It's certainly true regarding Mary. Let's ask ourselves, what, relate, what attitudes were, were, um, were found within her? And the first one is faith. She's asked to consider an impossibility, which is what she does. And she says, uh, you remember the words, how can this be? Verse 34, how can this be? How can divinity grow within humanity? How can this be? And the angel says, this is the power of God. Now, you might remember that there's a contrast with Zechariah, whose story was told a few, uh, few verses earlier. He was also told an impossibility. You will be a father. Your wife will uh, conceive a child. 
and the impossibility that he was faced with was that his wife was beyond childbearing age. So it was impossible, but I think it was a less impossible impossibility than the impossibility that Mary was faced with. But do you remember how he failed to receive this? Uh, because he didn't believe. I'm just looking for the, for the text, verse 20. You will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Please notice the importance of words from God being received by faith. Zechariah failed in that, but Mary did not. And in verse 45, uh, Elizabeth says, Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord said to her will be accomplished. So I ponder this, and I think in this great event of the incarnation, we have not only the almightiness of God, but we have in the, the whole way that this works, the reception of this miracle by faith. You see, Mary is not a blank canvas onto which God imprints willy-nilly. He engages her in a relationship, and from her point of view, or from her side of it, faith is absolutely necessary. Now, you might say, um, would the incarnation have been possible if Mary had disbelieved? Have a think about that. Uh, she believed what was said, uh, but we're very definitely told in Hebrews 11, six, uh, verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. Without faith it is impossible to believe, please God. And in this event of the incarnation, one important part of it is the faith of the recipient of Mary. She believed God. Now, some gods, so-called gods, are not particularly gods who look for faith. They just do what they please. They zap people here or give that to them, give them blessings and whatever. And the whole business of promising and believing is not part of it. But with the Bible, the God of the Bible is a God who relates to people by his word, by promising things which we are to receive by faith. Now, the incarnation in the womb of Mary is a one-off, totally unique. And God, no angel is going to come to any of the ladies in the congregation here and say, uh, God wants permission to inhabit your womb for nine months. Uh, that was a one-off. But for every person, there is the prospect that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And for everyone, God comes to us and says, do I find faith? Because that's how I work. I promise I I would come into your life, but I can't and won't do that 
unless I find you a believer. Zechariah disbelieved, didn't he? And was rebuked for it. And it's so important for us as believers, if we're to have God in our lives, you understand the sense of what I'm saying, that we constantly live by faith. There's another thing that was uh, there in um, Mary's mindset, and that is the aspect of submission. At, At the end of the conversation with the angel... Verse 37, the angel says, Nothing is impossible with God. And Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Notice again the importance of the words that were said. And she says, May it be to me as you have said. She's saying, I trust you. I offer myself to you as your servant. I am at your disposal. May it be to me as you have said. Let's be hypothetical. Suppose Mary had said, I don't trust you. I'm not going to open up my life to the working of God. The insides and the depths of my body and life are mine. Keep out. What would God have done? Well, it's very hypothetical because God is sovereign. But it is true that the way God chose to work was to tell her what was going on, to come in this particular manner, to look for her faith, and to, um, to work through her words of submission. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And I think there's something very important here. God is not the rapist of the human body, nor the human soul. He does not force himself against the will of the recipient. And the incarnation is not divinity forced onto humanity, but exactly epitomizes this idea that God comes to people in his gentleness, in his power, with his words, with his promises, and looks for faith. And how is it with you when God comes to you? Do you say, I trust you. I'm your servant. Come into my life, do in my life what you will. Have you asked him to do that? Have you responded as you've heard him say things like that to you? If you've never heard him say that sort of thing, what would you do if he did say that? What response would you give? Because Mary says, let it be to me according to your word. An act in which a particular mindset is required on the human level, faith and submission. And thirdly, the incarnation is an act which required a particular mindset on the part of God. So it's not simply power from the human point of view, and it's not simply power from the divine point of view either. What is the attitude? Well, uh, we have an attitude on the part of the Father. 
and we can quote Romans 8.32. Have all those things come up up on the screen in one go? Yeah, I didn't mean to do that, never mind. Uh, Romans 8.32, let me quote uh, this little verse here where it says, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. don't think that's just to do with the incarnation, but it certainly includes it. God gave his son to come into this world to die. It required a certain attitude on the part of God. And you may say, well, God doesn't have attitudes. God doesn't Uh, he's above all that he just gets on and does his sovereign divine will so God you might say is like the um, the Beijing authorities when it was the Olympics and they needed a motorway to go through and if there was a row of old houses with some people still living in them they said well that's too bad we're just going to blow that motorway through there get on the bulldozer knock it all down because that's the way we do things there's no personal attitude taken into account for that and you might see God as a sort of almighty bulldozer driving God but then it shows how wrong you can be doesn't it the the Bible is very emphatic that God takes a certain attitude to people so here the attitude of the father he did not spare his own son he did not spare so if you've got a a baby, you've had a baby, you might, uh, some, some mums didn't want, do you remember they didn't want their children to have, was it the mumps, mumps, measles, rubella, I'm glad I managed to say that. Um, they didn't want them to have that injection. And every mum thinks, oh, shall I have my little child have that nasty needle in their arm or whatever it is? And oh, I, I just—they—they'll cry. It'll be too painful. There'll be tears and tantrums. Spare the child. Don't let them have it. Well, God did not spare His Son. His Son bore all the unpleasantness, all the trials and troubles of coming to this world. God did not spare his son and you might if you've got children you might and and they're really naughty you might say oh I couldn't bear to lift a a finger against them I couldn't bear to punish them I couldn't bear to withdraw the slightest privilege poor child will weep and cry it will be terrible Um, spare the child spare them that I think it the old proverb was spare the child and spare the spare that's the one I was trying to think of yes But God did not spare his son. God didn't say, oh no, it's too difficult for him. Oh no, he'll be upset by it. It'll it'll hurt him. God didn't say that. He he allowed all these things to happen. So there's an attitude on the part of the father. But I wanted to think particularly of the attitude on the part of the son. Uh, So Philippians, we're going to come back to Philippians chapter 2, which is the same things that we looked at before but I'm asking not, t- not who did it but what attitude did they take in doing it so you remember in Philippians 2 verse 7 he made himself 
nothing. He made himself, as it were, a nobody. Now, what's that program? Is there a program called Secret Boss? Something like that? Secret Millionaire. Is it a secret millionaire? Yes, where the boss of a big company uh, comes down and works on the shop floor with his employees, uh, or his or her employees, and finds out what it's really like to be there and at the end um, all is revealed and they say wow you're Sir Alan Sugar or whatever you know never recognized you and Sir Alan Sugar or whoever it is says because you work so hard I'm gonna I'm gonna give you all a double pension or what, whatever it does like that uh, but to begin with he's unknown now on the program of course it works because at the end they, they, th they think how wonderful he is. But Jesus came to endure the contradiction of sinners, and many of them still didn't believe, and many of them still hated him. What sort of attitude does it take to make yourself a nobody under those circumstances? And verse 7, it says, "...taking the very nature of a servant." taking the very nature of a servant. So if you imagine from Downton Abbey, Lord Grantham, anybody ever watched Downton Abbey? Oh, yeah, right, okay, somebody will understand the illustration. So it was a country house, Lord Grantham is the big, big boss, and he's used to giving orders and being served. And one day one of the housemaids says to him, get me some toast and marmalade this instant. And he says, excuse me, you don't tell me what to do. Or perhaps he might say, perhaps he might take the very nature of a servant. And perhaps he might say, oh, okay, just this once. What was it? Toast and marmalade. Where is that? What is toast? How do you get toast? You heat bread. Ah, oh, right, okay, I'm going to do that. Um, what sort of attitude would it require for Lord Grantham to say, yes, okay, I'll go and get the toast and marmalade? And then, in verse 8, he humbled himself. So Lord Grantham might say, well, I've already done that. I've given you toast and marmalade once. But the servant might say, well, I want you to always do that. I want that to be your, the way you look at every single day more to be done. He took the very nature of a servant. Being found in human likeness, he, an, an appearance as man, he humbled himself. So don't just make toast and marmalade once, but get your stuff out of the master bedroom. Go and live downstairs with the servants' quarters. What attitude does it take to become obedient to death? Verse 8. What attitude does it take to become obedient to death? You think of the First World War, when the, it was usually the lads, wasn't it? The 19, 20-year-olds would go out to fight for king and country. And they would say, I want to go and do this. I want to go and do this for my, for my mum. And I want to go and do this for my sisters. And I want to go and do this for my baby brother. And I want to go and do this for my old dad and our village and everything around me? What sort of attitude does it take to become obedient to death? 
does take an attitude, doesn't it? You have to have something going on in your head to be willing to do that. So what is the attitude of the Son of God? Well, in chapter 2, verse 3, I think he, he pretty well pins it down. He says to his readers, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And I think it's exactly the mindset that the Son of God had in humbling himself in the incarnation. It's the attitude of self-sacrifice for the benefit of other people. It's an attitude of selflessness. It's the opposite of the pride and the self-centeredness which says, the only thing that matters is me. Okay, you could imagine people thinking that. The only thing that matters is me. And what the Son of God says is, what, what I care about is what happens to them. And think about the, the way the thought begins. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. It sort of needs another word in there to make it clear. So do you think this is the word? Who, this is the word, despite being in very nature God, took the form of a servant. Despite being in very nature God, took the form of a servant. That makes sense, wouldn't it? It preserves that, uh, that contrast between the highness of God and the lowness of the human condition. sort of makes sense. But I would suggest that's not the word that is implied in the passage. I think the word that's implied in the passage is because. Because he is in very nature God, he humbled himself. Because it is in the nature of God to be like this, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant. I think what this, the incarnation is doing is showing us a deep, deep truth about the sort of God our God is. That in his glory and in his magnificence, we could say of him in a, in, in, in a true sense, but in a mysterious sense, there is humility within divinity. And it's that attitude, of course, that Paul is saying wants, needs to rub off on the other believers. He says... For your community, this should colour the sort of community you have. Have the same mindset that Jesus Christ had, verse 5. So you guys don't do things thinking the only thing that matters is me. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But think of others as being more important than yourselves. And he says this about, uh, it, it, it's a theme of, of that chapter, indeed of that letter. And he says, if you look across in chapter 2, verse 20, uh, he talks about Timothy, and he says, I've got no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Everyone else looks out for his own interests, 
not those of Christ Jesus. When I was a school teacher, um, we had a, um, a deputy head who was a very strong character, and then uh, the, the position of head was vacant, and a new head came along, and at one staff meeting, he, um, he commented on the behavior of the deputy head, and he inadvertently uh, said, I don't think he meant it to come out like this, he said, uh, um, uh, we can't um, impose such and such on, a ch- on, on, a, uh, on, the, on the pupils like a little tin god. And the, the deputy head said, well, I don't know which I find most offensive, the little or the tin god part of what you've just said about me. It wasn't, I'm sure it wasn't meant to come out like that, but it, <laughs> that's the way it, uh, it came across. A little tin god. Now, do you think Jesus is behaving like a little tin god? He's behaving like God. And how does God behave? He doesn't strut around, bossing people around. He comes in his humility and sacrifice to save us. Think of another example of the the Roman emperors who got to the point where they believed their own PR and were billed as gods and I think began to think they were gods. And how did those gods behave? Well, they demanded obedience, they forced themselves onto their population by force and demanded worship. And they, they were God-men, if you like. But here is the real God-man. Here's the incarnation. It's not a man becoming God, but God becoming man. And it's not done by power nakedly. Not, it's not just an act of power, although it is an act of power. But it's an act in which humanity is approached with a word of promise to be received by faith and submission to the goodness of God. That's how God relates to humankind. And God himself is not in pride and self-glory, just thinking of himself alone, as it were, but in sacrifice and humility. And it is a mystery, but it's a a wonderful mystery. What a wonderful God we have. What a wonderful saviour is Jesus. And what a wonderful thing to love him and trust him and for him to be in our lives. Let's sing together. 384.